Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here today. It is uh, a privilege that we have, uh, that we have the words of Almighty God, our Creator, uh, that we can open up before us and study now together. If your Bibles aren't already open to Genesis chapter 11, I ask that you'll open them there now. Uh, We'll be uh, spending most of our time right here in Genesis 11. We'll be referencing some other passages, but if you just keep your Bibles open here, uh, you'll be able to follow along. Back in 2015, Erin and I uh, took a trip to to visit Washington, D.C. She had been before. It was my first time uh, to go there. And I was really impressed, uh, especially walking around the National Mall with how many monuments there were uh, in this one city. I I heard a statistic that supposedly there are over 160 different monuments, some of them less well known, uh, in D.C. itself. And we enjoyed seeing all those different monuments. Many of them commemorate good men who accomplished great things. Lincoln, Jefferson, uh, many of the men who, who fought and died uh, for our, our country. But I couldn't help but think while we were there about how much time and money and, and resources went into commemorating and, uh, and immortalizing these men. It reminded me very much of the the pyramids and the palaces and the temples and the statues that you see in many other countries in in ancient Egypt or ancient Greece or Rome that today sit in ruins. You know, 500 years from now, what will Washington, D.C. look like? And as I looked at the the Washington Monument reaching high into the heavens, I, I thought about another tower whose top reached into the heavens. And I'm not intending to make a direct parallel here, but just to help you understand my my thought process. You think about the Tower of Babel, man's first attempt to make a name for himself, exalting and immortalizing his accomplishments. In general, not a lot has changed in the moral outlook of the world in which we live since Genesis 3. Man's mindset from the beginning has has not altered greatly. The errors of Babel are still prevalent among us today. The Tower of Babel has certainly become a lasting memorial for us, but not a memorial in the way that its original builders intended for it to be. Today, it is a memorial for us within the scriptures, not of the greatness of man, but of man's pride, man's disobedience, and ultimately his failure. And so today, I want us to look at the errors of Babel. And there's nothing wrong in in building monuments, nothing wrong in building great structures, but I think we need to be careful that we don't fall into the mindset and the attitude that characterized these people of this day. Does that describe us? Does that describe me? And so hopefully we can learn the lessons that God intends for us to learn here in this chapter uh, in Genesis 11. We see, first of all, that the Tower of Babel, rather than being a monument of man's greatness, became a monument of defiance. You notice as they begin to make this plan in verse 3 and 4, They say, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they use bricks for stone and they use tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, 
Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. As they're making their plans, you, you hear their language, come, let us do this, let us do this for ourselves. It's very, in some ways, reminiscent of the language of God back in Genesis 1. You remember in Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our own image. And in fact, God uses the same language down in verse 7 here, really kind of mimicking what they had just said. God says, come, let us go down. And they are confused their languages. Many times we get so caught up in our own plans and our own designs and in our own purposes that we want to make ourselves the master. We want to make ourselves great. We want to be our own creator, uh, authors of our own destinies, take the position and authority of God for ourselves. And this is a problem that really comes from the, the beginning of man's sin. That we have desired to lift ourselves up to be the ones who are in control, the, the potter of our own lives. In Genesis 3, you remember part of the temptation that led man into sin is Satan saying that our eyes would be open and we would be like God. Eve saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Man has always wanted to be his own master. And in what we call humanism today, this is really the, the core of the, the worldview that, that sees man as in control. There are bumper stickers that say, in the beginning, man created God. The atheistic humanistic community wants to, to convince us that, that we are the highest form of intelligence, that we have, have evolved so greatly that, that we are able to search out all of the secrets of the universe and that there is no secret that we cannot uncover, that we ultimately can write our own truth, that we can be in control. But we need to realize that that is not the case at all. We are not in control. God's purposes, his plans are sure to take place. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, here we see another statement that sounds a little bit like the plans of these people back in the days of Babel. James 4, starting in verse 13, we read, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. And we might read that statement in verse 13 and, and think, well, that sounds kind of innocent. You know, we're, we're making these plans. But the problem is the attitude going on here, that, that instead of letting God's will and God's plans be at the forefront of our minds, we think that, that we can make our own plans, that we can be in control. And James warns us, you don't even know if you're going to have life, if you're going to have breath tomorrow. Your life is but a vapor. You should say in verse 15, if the Lord wills, we will live. Step one, we still need to be living. And also do this. Or that. You can't even control whether or not you wake up tomorrow morning. And so we need, in contrast to the attitude of Babel, making our own plans, uh, 
setting our own blueprints for our life, we need to surrender to God's will. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. We're allowing him to be the potter and us to be the clay. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Proverbs 19 and verse 21. We're told, many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And this is a truth that that we need to, to drive home in our minds. That we aren't in control. That we need to surrender our plans, our dreams, our blueprint to let God be the master. We are clay in his hands. And back there in Genesis 11, we also see in verse 4 that part of their purpose that they were planning, in verse 4, they say, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. So what is this plan? What is this goal? What is the end purpose that they were driving for? Rather than worshiping and exalting God's name, their goal was to ultimately exalt their name. Is this not, again, uh, part of the, the root problem that we see stemming from Genesis 3 and man's sin? Romans 1 verse 25, we're told that man became futile in his thinking and worshiped and served the creature or the creation rather than the creator. And we might think, well, that, that's talking about idolatry, building uh, you know, images that, that we worship. But idolatry really is, is much more than just the, the building of uh, statues that we can then fall down and worship before. Idolatry is really exalting anything above God. And when we exalt ourselves and we want to exalt our own name, we ultimately are worshiping the creature, the creation rather than the creator. I think this is something that we can be guilty of without realizing it. That we can begin in our own minds thinking more of what man has accomplished or what man is able to do than we do about God's accomplishments. I I want to do a a perspective exercise here. I'm going to show you a, a picture Uh, And this goes along with with the introduction that we were talking about earlier. And if I were to ask you what impresses you most about the design and the construction and the artistry of what you see in this picture, what would you say? You know, because it's it's right in the center of the picture, you might say, well, the Washington Monument, you know, that that, uh, is is such a, a tall structure. It's so amazing. What about the sunset in the background? Which one impresses us more? Sometimes we, we can become so in awe and, and, and so enwrapped in what man is doing, what we're accomplishing and what we're able to achieve, that we begin to let that cloud our view of God's creation and what he has accomplished and what he's able to do. We need to make sure that we don't lose sight, uh, that we don't start honoring and putting more focus on the creation rather than our creator. Proverbs 16 and verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 
When we start exalting ourselves, we are certain to fall. And that is illustrated perhaps in no better way than as we see here in the Tower of Babel, the ruins of defiance and pride. And yet, James 4, again, in that same context that we were referencing earlier, earlier in verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. How are we going to be exalted? How are we going to be lifted? Not, not by exalting ourselves, but when we humble ourselves before God, when we give him the honor that he deserves, if we are exalted, if we are honored, it's going to be God picking us up off the ground. And it's ultimately going to be for his greater glory and for his praise. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. We read, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, And let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. We see this quoted in 1 Corinthians 1 when he talks about looking at our calling, that not many mighty are called, not many wise according to the flesh. But God chose the lowly. And he says at the end of that passage, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 31, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Where's our focus? You know, any uh, accomplishment, any discovery, any invention, any achievement that we make, we need to recognize that it's not us. It's not our wisdom, not our power, not our ability. But God's name is the name to be exalted. And you notice also, along with this idea of pride and defiance, notice what it is that the people of Babel are are so worried about. There in verse 4, say, let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Here, we're going to band together, we're all going to get together, we're going to build this city and we're going to make our name great because we don't want to be scattered everywhere. We want to be united here in this city. Let that sounds like maybe that's a good thing. We, we don't want to be scattered. We don't want to be separated. We don't want to be divided. We want to all be together, right? The problem was that that is in direct violation of what God told them to do. You remember back in Genesis 9 and verse 1, after Noah uh, and his family come out of the ark, and they have this covenant of the rainbow, what were they told by God? In 9 verse 1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Later on in verse 7, As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. You might look at Genesis 11 and they say, Well, we don't want to be scattered about. We, we don't want to be dispersed over all the earth. We don't want to be divided. We want to all be united here. We can achieve greater things together. That might sound like it's a good goal, right? But what sounds good to us sometimes is in direct violation of what God told us to do. When we start getting lifted up in our own pride, we can start exalting our own ideas of what is good rather than exalting what God has told us. Do you think we do that today? You know, we, we often strive for goals that sound good, but are not what God has told us to do. We, we might say, well, we can't preach that. The world wouldn't like it. That will turn people away. We don't want to turn people away, right? We, we need to try to get in touch with the culture in which we live. We need to become more casual, uh, more accepting, more tolerant, 
Those might sound like really good things, right? You know, and, and we shouldn't use so much scripture. Uh, you know, we, we don't want to come across as, as Bible thumpers. We, we just need to be more motivational. We, do, we don't want to, you know, cut people to the heart. We just want to touch their heart. Uh, and, we, and we shouldn't be so focused on doctrine, you know, on, on book, chapter, and verse. Uh, you know, that, well, that's just legalistic. We, we need, just need to try to reflect the spirit of Christianity. I think sometimes we, we start saying things that, that within themselves might, might sound kind of good. And maybe there's an element of, of truth there, but it can cause us to stray to a point that we are in direct violation of what God has told us. You know, we, we aren't here to please the world. We're here to please God. And God has called us to be separate from the world, not conformed to the world. And these words within the scriptures, they are spirit and they are life. And there is no way that we're going to be in a right relationship with God without them. And so when we start saying things that, that might sound good, that we need to get more in touch with the world in which we live, sometimes it can turn us in direct violation of what God has told us. And I think we see the same type of things here. They get their minds grasped on this goal that sounds good. We don't want to be divided. We don't want to be scattered. But that is not what God told them to do. And so Babel teaches us the dangers of defiance, of pride and disobedience. Pride really being the root of, of that defiance that turns us against God. But not only was Babel a monument of defiance, it's also a monument of division. Notice God's assessment starting in verse 6. It says, the Lord said, behold, they are all one people and they all have the same language. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, within itself, maybe neither. But you might think, well, they're all one people. Isn't that good? They're all united. Doesn't God want unity? And yet, God here causes them to scatter about. You know, didn't Jesus in John 17 pray for unity, that all those who come to believe in him might be one, even as he and the Father are one? In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, Paul says, I exhort you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. That they all be united speaking the same thing. Isn't that a good thing? And yet, in verse 8, as we see, the Lord scatters them. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Why did God do that? Is God just a divisive God? You know, that God sees this unity, and, and he's trying to break it up here? Many times, that's how people feel today when we take a firm stance on the scriptures, when we refuse to tolerate sin or false doctrine, when we withdraw from those who would walk disorderly or, or, or teach false things. But we need to recognize here that Jesus never advocated unity as a goal within itself. And that God here, because of man's defiance, because of man's rebellion, promoted division. We see the same thing with Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, when he's talking about the, the cost of discipleship. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 34, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
and to turn uh, a man against his father and a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I thought Jesus came to bring peace. I thought Jesus prayed for unity. How in the world can Jesus say that he came to, to bring a sword? I think what this shows us is that unity outside of God's will is useless. Does God want unity? Most certainly. Does God want peace? Yes. But not peace at any price. Not unity outside of God's will for us. Remember in John 17, what did Jesus pray for? That we all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I and you, that they may be one in us. Where is this unity? In Jesus and in the Father. And so it's not that, that unity within itself, regardless of where it's located morally, is what God wants. In fact, unity outside of God's will can do more damage than it does good. And so when we advocate for unity, when we advocate for peace, we need to make sure that we're recognizing that that is unity and peace within God's will and within God's word. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. Here, Paul recognizes that there are times where division is necessary. And let me say, you, you ultimately never have division without sin. But there are going to be times where division is a necessary step that needs to take place because of sin. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18 and 19. Here, Paul is addressing many different problems that are going on in the church in Corinth. And he says in verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. What is he saying? He's saying if anybody is going to be approved in this situation, if anybody is going to be in a right relationship with God, there must be division because there is error going on here. There are times where when sin and error are going on, God doesn't want us to be unified with sin and error. God doesn't want us to be unified with defiance and rebellion. And division has to take place. And so, we, we need to recognize that while God certainly is a God that advocates for unity and peace, God is the God of peace, that that peace and that unity must be found within God's purposes, within God's will. And when we have unity outside of God's will, just like the people of Babel had unity, that's not necessarily a good thing. In fact, it might be something that God desires to disperse because it's only going to do damage. So the Tower of Babel teaches us that division is sometimes going to be necessary. Unity cannot be a goal within itself. We must strive for unity within God's will. Not only is Babel a monument of defiance and division, finally, it is a monument of defeat. Notice God's response. Starting in verse 5, if you go back to 
Genesis chapter 11 and verse 5 says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Do you notice that language? The Lord came down. What, what was part of the goal of building the city and specifically building the tower? They said that it might reach unto the heavens. And yet the language here is almost like, you know, God had to, to come down because it was so small he couldn't see it. <laughs> Not that that's actually the case, but, but certainly that's the, the imagery that we get here. God came down to see the city. And in verse 7 he says, come, let us go down. And they are confused their languages so that they may not understand one another's speech. God here mimics the the language of the builders as they made their plans. Now God is making his plans in verse 7. Whose plans are, are going to hold? They have their plans. God has his plans. Which one's going to come out on top? I think we know the answer. All the manpower, all the resources, all the hours of work on this project, God brings to nothing in a matter of moments. It doesn't matter how strong we think we are. It doesn't matter, you know, how many people we think we have on our side. If God's not on our side, then it is all useless. We are doomed to fail. Brother, we need to come to appreciate the sovereignty and power of God over his creation. We, we can sometimes convince ourselves that we're in control. That as we persist in our disobedience and nobody comes down and strikes us dead, that, well, God must not be in control. That we can pursue our own desires. Um, and yet, in the end, God will bring our prideful pursuits to a swift end. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 gives us some imagery Uh, to picture God's relationship with his creation. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 22. Isaiah 40 and verse 22, we read, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Notice that language, its inhabitants are like grasshoppers before him. Have you ever been standing above uh, an, an ant hill and, and you, you look at all the, the ants scurrying around do, doing their work? Or, or as we look down from above on, on little insects, their, their entire world seems so small to us. Well, that's how God describes his relationship to man. Now, certainly, God in his grace has a great care and a great love for those little grasshoppers. <laughs> But in distinction to to his power and his greatness and his sovereignty, that's all we are. He stretches out the heavens, outer space, the stars, just like he is stretching out a curtain, just like he is, you know, straightening out his tablecloth. Here he, he stretches out the heavens above us. Verse 23 and 24, it says, He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them, and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. You think about the the rulers of the earth, some of the the greatest men who have ever lived. 
You think about people like Alexander the Great, or Julius Caesar, or Napoleon, these great conquerors. Did you know not a single one of those lived past their 50s? You, you think the, these great men with great accomplishments, and yet, in just 50 years, their life is extinguished. Life is but a vapor. And what is 50 years in the span of eternity? God is not impressed with our accomplishments and advancements. And while we can be thankful and glorify God for the things that we are able to do, we need to make sure that we aren't too impressed with our own accomplishments. That we see them on the backdrop of God's eternity, God's uh, power, God's sovereignty. And remember that these men of Babel wanted to make a great name for themselves. Well, God gave them a name back in Genesis 11 after he dispersed and scattered all of them. In verse 9, it says, Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. They were given a name. And they are immortalized today for us. You know, thousands of years later, here are you and I talking about Babel. Isn't that great? But we're not talking about them because of their great accomplishments. Now, God gave them a name, but a name that memorializes their rebellion, a name that memorializes their defeat. The Hebrew name Babel here is what we might know better as Babylon. Babylon, a name that throughout the scriptures, in Isaiah, in Revelation, is a symbol for a wicked and worldly power of pride and enemy of God's people that would ultimately be destroyed. We can read about Babylon in Revelation 18, this great wicked and worldly power that ultimately will be conquered and brought to nothing. And in contrast to Babel, I want us to conclude by looking at what God replaces Babel with. Look in chapter 12, the very next chapter in Genesis 11. In the first three verses of chapter 12, if you'll read with me, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in all, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Contrast man's failure to God's success. Here man had gotten all of these people together, got all this manpower, all these resources to build up this great city, to make a great name for themselves, and they fell flat. And God takes a 75-year-old nomad with a barren wife and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to give you a great name. We see that God doesn't need manpower. God doesn't need our resources. God can use the most lowly to accomplish his purposes. We see this time and time again throughout the scriptures. God takes a lowly shepherd boy and makes him king. God takes a Jewish carpenter, and in him we have the Son of God. God takes fishermen 
and makes them his apostles. Psalm 127, verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Certainly that is true of Babel. And yet, if the Lord does build the house, you can be blind, you can be lame, you can be deaf, you can be without a penny to your name, and God will accomplish it. Because it's not dependent upon our strength. And ultimately, in Acts chapter 2, we have the reversal of Babel. Where God, in Genesis 11, scatters all the people by changing their languages. In Acts 2, what do you have? You have God building his kingdom by allowing his apostles to speak in tongues. By bridging the gap, bridging the division. The church, in a very real sense, is the reversal of Babel. It's a monument not of defiance, but of obedience and submission. It's a monument not of division, but of unity and peace in Christ. It's a monument not of defeat, but of victory through our Savior. When you think about God's plans and God's purposes, though he used the lowly, though he used that that was not impressive to our view, God and his plans are so much greater. He's able to accomplish so much more. So the question for us today is, which city are you a part of? Which kingdom are you a part of? Are you a descendant of Babel, a follower of worldly pride and disobedience? If so, God will scatter you. You will be defeated. Or are you a citizen of the spiritual Israel, Christ's body, the church? It's not our own strength that can accomplish our salvation. Ultimately, it's only God's right hand that can save us. His great power. If you're willing to humble yourself before the Lord today, He can exalt you. If you're willing to surrender your life to Him, to recognize that you cannot be the potter of your own life, that you cannot be the guide of your own steps, God will guide you. God will mold you. God will transform you into what He wants you to be. If you need to commit your life to the Lord, to hand your life over to Him, you can confess your belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and by God's grace, you can bury your old life, the old man of sin and baptism, and you can be raised to walk in newness of life. If you've made that commitment, but you have not been living it, you have allowed pride to, to allow you to stray from God's path for you, won't you turn your life back to Him? If there's anyone who needs to make a change in a public way at this time, we'll ask that you let these brethren know as we sing.